Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is episode 14, Unsettled. In the last episode, Japan had surrendered. With that, bringing an end to the Sino-Japanese War and World War II. Sort of. As I explained then, it was complicated. The communist forces in China had not been included in the surrender terms with the Japanese. So, at best, the end of the war only brought the prospect of peace to China. There were still tensions between the Guomindang government and the CCP. Those tensions had been festering. We also learned about China's tenuous international status and her diminished posture as a reliable Asian power. In this episode, I want to get into some more detail regarding the actual Japanese surrender. We learn about the immediate political and military realities because of her surrender. All of this folds into the fading hopes of a peaceful resolution of China's issues. The United States will try to mediate a happy middle ground including a coalition government. Those mediation efforts, however, largely went nowhere. Japan formally surrendered to the Allies and China during the months of August and September in the year 1945. General Douglas MacArthur authorized the Chinese government to accept the terms of the Japanese surrender and approximately 1.3 million Japanese troops surrendered in China. Crazily, though, because of communication mix-ups between Chiang Kai-shek and the CCP leaders, the CCP was attacking Japanese lines right up to the moment of the formal surrender. After Japan's surrender, Japan, acting as the national forces proxies were ordered to retake the territory recently lost to the communist forces. Between late August and through September of 1945, there was active fighting between Chinese communist forces and Japanese forces. These battles lost many cities for the communists, including Beijing, of course, then known as Peiping. Also, Present in China were Russian forces in Manchuria, perhaps as many as 600,000. The United States also sent troops on China's behalf, into, mainly into northern China, Manchuria, and into Taiwan. By late September 1945, some 50,000 American soldiers occupied areas around Beijing, Qingdao, and the Shandong 
province and other points in China. They were acting as a peacekeeper until the arrival of nationalist forces. The American troops were given strict instructions not to become involved in the Chinese Civil War. The communists vehemently protested the Americans' mobilization in China as a gross interference in Chinese internal affairs. The presence of Soviet troops further complicated matters. You will recall Soviet troops were occupying Manchuria at the same time as the Japanese were surrendering. The Soviets assured the Chinese they would leave Manchuria within three months of the Japanese surrender. Meanwhile, in those same interim months, the communists were pouring into Manchuria and other areas of China while the Soviets and the Americans were preoccupied with their own interests. After the death of FDR in the spring of 1945, tensions between the United States and the USSR grew. It would be difficult for China to squeeze between these two and have a legitimate, useful role for either nation. There may have been another reality that would make China an unlikely ally to other nation, to other nations, that is. It was the ongoing, unsettled feud between the nationalists and the communists. The Nanjing government desperately wanted to be part of the international community. Additionally, she wanted foreign assistance to help rebuild China and strengthen the Guomindang's diminishing power. The CCP feared the foreign alliances would benefit the nationalists and work against the CCP. That was indeed a major driver for the CCP's desire for a coalition government in China. And in case the CCP did not get a coalition government, they went about quietly building their political and economic base in China. From late 1945 until late 1946, the United States assigned General George C. Marshall to mediate the China problem. We know those efforts went nowhere. Instead, the fighting between the nationalist forces and the communist forces intensified. It was not surprising that by the middle of 1946, the CCP were publicly denouncing the foreign intervention. The communists began to accuse the United States of hiding her imperial ambitions in the ruse of the mediation efforts. In contrast, the nationalists and the Nanjing government grasped the United States' hand ever tighter. After the Soviets recognized the Kuomintang as a legitimate government of China, the CCP realized she may not be able to rely on the Soviets' help against the Kuomintang. So the CCP devised a plan. They would denounce American imperialism and tacitly support the Soviets in her Cold War against the United States. 
That meant the CCP would have to go all out against the nationalists, particularly after Marshall's mediation efforts appeared to be going nowhere. The United States would, the United States would for a while, continue to support the nationalists in the form of money, but not troops. But even that support was relatively measured. It was clear the United States was giving up on China. The Truman administration, however, more or less had to physically show political support for Chiang Kai-shek's government, so it appeared that the United States was fighting against communism. The Soviets were also guarded in their support for matters in China. Joseph Stalin was reluctant to support the CCP because he feared it would provoke the United States. At a minimum, the Soviets focused on improving their Manchuria interests with the Kuomintang government. No one wanted any part of the fighting between the nationalists and the communists. In the end, China would be frozen out of world affairs. Chiang Kai-shek and his government failed miserably to benefit geopolitically from the victory over Japan. He had missed an opportunity to garner either American or Soviet help in the fight against the CCP. Thus, Chiang Kai-shek was left to his own devices. Japan, in contrast, was soon brought back into the international community. Germany and Japan were reintegrated into the global community and played key roles for the West's upcoming Cold War against the Soviets. By 1949, Japanese-American diplomatic ties over Asia-Pacific matters replaced Chinese-American diplomatic ties. Before I leave this part of the discussion of the immediate post-war political developments, I want to mention more about the efforts to form a coalition government. This does set up some of what comes next. Patrick Hurley, I mentioned him in the last episode, replaced General Joseph Stilwell. Hurley was FDR's personal representative to Chiang Kai-shek. He was eventually appointed ambassador in 1944. His mission among other things, was to, quote, unify all the military forces in China for the purpose of defeating Japan, end of quote. The CCP wanted to share power with the nationalists and strongly pushed for coalition government. The nationalists, naturally, opposed that. When Japan surrendered, however, Chiang Kai-shek invited Mao Zedong to Chongqing to discuss the issues the two sides had with each other. Ambassador Hurley, playing the mediator, personally escorted Mao Zedong from Yan'an to visit with Chiang Kai-shek. 
The two of them actually agreed on general principles for coalition government. But, as always, the devil would be in the details. The agreed principles were unify military forces, the CCP would be equal in law to the nationalists and on an array of civil administrative issues. Also, the Guomindang agreed to end one-party rule in China and acquiesce to the CCP's demands for a coalition government. I am sure the war-weariness of both sides provided some motivation to resolve their differences. It should be noted, however, that while they were negotiating with each other, each were racing to take control of the areas relinquished by the Japanese surrender most notably in Manchuria. Both sides were anticipating the Soviet withdrawal from that area that was scheduled for November of 1945. By mid-1945, the communists had flooded Manchuria and had large numbers there. The Nanjing government slowed awake realized the communist occupation, and negotiated with the Soviets to extend their occupation in the region until May of 1946. In November of 1945, Chiang Kai-shek sent some of his finest troops to the area. The Americans assisted them. The Soviets merely looked on. The communists were busy building their support and forces and filled that area that the nationalist forces had evacuated, trying to retake Manchuria. It was hopeless. Chiang Kai-shek had committed to Manchuria some of his finest American-equipped forces, and they never reemerged from there. The decision to focus on Manchuria and failing to remove the communists there would be fateful. In late November 1945, Ambassador Hurley resigned his post in China. He blamed, for his decision, American Foreign Service officials having communist sympathies and torpedoing and undermining his mediation efforts. President Truman replaced him the next month with General George Marshall to mediate the Guomindang CCP feud. Marshall's task was indeed centered on the coalition government idea, as the two sides had tentatively agreed earlier. Despite some early optimism in Marshall's efforts, it all soon melted away. And again, the devil was in the details. It turned out enforcement of each side's promises to each other were an insurmountable problem. By March of 1946, it was clear neither side could live with the other. And by April 1947, the United States terminated the Marshall Mission. And within a few months after that, hostilities began between the two sides. The communists by then declared they would no longer participate 
in mediation. So what happened? Surely neither side wanted to war against the other. Well, both sides, to some extent, resented the United States' involvement. Many on each side saw the Americans as a chief problem. From the Guomindang perspective, some thought the Americans hindered and frustrated the nationalist desire to exterminate the communist. The Guomindang leaders grew weary of American demands for reforms, some of them not practical. From the communist perspective, it was the inherent conflict of interest of Marshall and the Americans. Marshall tried to remain neutral during mediation, but simultaneously, of course, represented the United States, which was a chief source of aid and support to one of the parties in the dispute. Furthermore, the U.S. military was aiding the Nanjing government against the CCP. To the CCP, it appeared the Americans were encouraging the nationalists to seek a military solution with the communists. From the Americans' perspective, Marshall's failure was preordained. They should have assumed that mediation would never work. In my next episode, it will be the last of this season. And I will discuss the resumption of the Chinese Civil War between the Nationalists and the Communists. That would end in 1949 with the defeat of the Nationalists and the CCP's inauguration of the People's Republic of China. I also want to provide some thoughts of the post-imperial era. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.